for you. For those of us, or for those of you who are joining us for the first time, perhaps, or haven't been in a while, uh, we have been in the Gospel of John, and we are reaching the end of that story, as you can tell by the sermon text for today in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And today we are going to hear uh, a fish tale. In fact, uh, several different kinds of fish stories appear in this story. And so, for those of you who like fishing and you like fish tales and tall tales, this is a story for you. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word as we hear the gospel of John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. The word of God reads, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No! He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not yet torn, or was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. going on in this story? On the surface, it looks like it's a story about a group of men who just went out one night to go fishing. But if you scratch a little bit and dig below the surface, you see that there's something else going on here. This is not just about a group of men going fishing. This is about a group of men who are trying to find their way 
A group of men who are not quite sure of their place in the world or what they are supposed to do. What is their mission and purpose? A group of men who are considering the possibility of going back to something they have left behind. A group of men who are not quite sure which direction to take. John tells us in the story that Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. The word appear is the word epiphany. This happens to be the season of the epiphany when the church calendar indicates to us that this is a time to remember that Jesus revealed himself or manifested himself to the nations. But in this story, Jesus manifests himself, reveals himself to his disciples. And it's interesting because John says he did it in this way, and instead of telling us in which way he revealed himself to the disciples, he simply lists for us which disciples were gathered together at that time and the circumstances under which Jesus revealed himself to them because even though he will reveal himself to them, they're still not quite sure who he is, where he is, what he's up to. We're told that Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and possibly Andrew and Philip were all gathered together. And Simon, of course, the ringleader, says, I'm going fishing. The other guys agree to go with him. Interesting note here for you that in the Gospel of John, all of these men are mentioned earlier in the story. You've probably forgotten some of them by now because we haven't seen some of these guys since last year, literally, perhaps even close to this time last year. I want to point out to you that some of these guys appeared early in the story, like Nathaniel. You remember that he was sitting under a fig tree when a disciple came and said to him, We have found the Lord, we found the Christ, the one that was promised. And Nathaniel was so skeptical, he says, Really? Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was from Cana, and apparently there was a rivalry between the two villages. But when he met Jesus, he confessed his faith in Jesus. And that's the last we've heard of him until now. James and John, of course, have been with Jesus the whole time. John is the disciple whom Jesus loves. Philip appears early on in the story. He's responsible for gathering some of the other men that are mentioned here. He also happened to be the one to whom the Greeks went, and the Greeks said to Philip, we would see Jesus. The connection there is that they're all from the same town. Maybe the Greeks remembered Philip, he remembered them, and they have an inside track to Jesus. But whatever the case, he's involved in that, bringing people to Jesus. And then you have the prime suspect here, Simon Peter. He runs throughout the story. And we all know Peter as this guy who is quick to act, slow to think. A guy whose heart gets way ahead of his mind. His zeal far outstrips his knowledge. He makes great boasts about what he will and won't do and fails to deliver. And here he is at a crossroads of his life. He has seen an empty tomb. He has seen grave clothes. He's encountered Jesus in an upper room twice. And the way the story is told in John's Gospel, he hasn't had a moment yet to reconcile with Jesus. He hasn't had a moment yet to say to Jesus, 
hey, about that whole denial thing, I'd really like to sort that out with you. He hasn't had that moment. Is he in or out? Is he accepted? Is he not accepted? He doesn't know. And so he says, I'm going fishing. You guys that like to fish will appreciate this. You'll have to get Bo to check me out on it. But the Greek word that is used for to fish looks and sounds very much like the word hallelujah. Right? It looks and sounds very much like the word hallelujah. They don't mean the same thing, of course. One means praise the Lord. The other means to fish. And for you fishermen, I know you think the two go hand in hand and one is the same. When you catch a fish, you praise the Lord, right? Peter says, I'm going to fish. Do not be confused here. He does not say, I'm going to praise the Lord. He, I'm going to fish. There's nothing wrong with fishing in and of itself. Fishing is a good thing. In fact, you could argue that fishing is a part of the creation mandate. God created man and gave man the mission to take dominion over even the fish of the sea. And you could argue that that's part of what the disciples are doing here. They're taking dominion over the fish of the sea, or at least trying. But they were skunked, and it looked like the fish had actually taken dominion over them. They fish all night. Morning comes, day breaks. You see the creation motifs appearing in the story again. Conflict between darkness and light, between night and day. There's formlessness. There's a void. Their nets are empty after all night of fishing. But in the morning when the light breaks and Jesus stands on the shore, everything begins to change, just as it did in the old creation. Now we see in the new creation, the world is beginning to look quite different. Things are happening in a new, in a true and better way. So again, nothing wrong with fishing. Fishing can be a very good thing, but here's what I think is happening, and here's why we should be concerned at this point in the story when we see a group of disciples saying, we're going to go fishing. Just remember back what happened eight days ago. Remember how Jesus met those guys in an upper room appeared to them in a room where they were locked behind doors for fear of the Jews, and He shows up in their midst. He reveals Himself to them, and He breathed on them the breath of life. He authorized them to go on mission and preach the gospel to the nations, to forgive sins or not forgive sins. The point is, He has sent them on mission to the world, and yet, what have they done? They've decided to go fishing, which to us seems innocent enough until you remember that most of these guys had been professional fishermen, career fishermen. It was their vocation. And here's what I think is going on. Just reading between the lines of the story, this fishing trip is not an innocent fishing trip. It's not just a bunch of guys getting together and going to hang out for tonight. It is Peter testing the waters, literally testing the waters, thinking, I will go fishing. I want to go back and check on an old way of life. I want to go see if I still have it, if I have something I can fall back on in case this Jesus mission thing doesn't work out. 
I miss fishing. It's what I know best. I can do it. It's concrete. I've got the calloused hands. I've got the boat, the nets, the crew. I can do this. It's something I can manage. But this other thing, shepherding people, preaching the gospel, enduring hardship, I'm not sure I can manage that. And so he goes fishing, and the other guys go with him, maybe just for support. Maybe they're not really sure what he's up to. Notice John doesn't say anything about his motives. John doesn't give us a peek inside Peter's heart and mind. So maybe I'm over-reading the text or reading too much of myself into it, but that's how I read the story. It's as if Peter is thinking deep down inside, if this pastoring gig doesn't work out... I can always fall back on fishing, right? I still have that. Now we're going to look at that a little bit more deeply in a couple of weeks, but suffice it to say for now that Jesus has called Peter to shepherd his people. And when he called Peter to shepherd his people, he crashed all of Peter's backup plans. Now Peter doesn't know that. He's not aware of that at this time. All he is aware of is that he wants to go fishing. Jesus has called him the shepherd. He's not sure which of these he's going to do. What he doesn't know and what he will soon find out is that he will never, ever, ever fall back on fishing again. He was called to be a shepherd. And he will shepherd God's flock from now until the day he dies. To mix metaphors, Jesus is not letting him off the hook. At least the shepherd's hook. Why? Because God's gifts and God's calling are irrevocable. I tutored a fifth grader this week over at Founders Academy in Dallas, and this was actually one of the vocabulary words we had to work on. And he and I spent five minutes laughing about whether this was irrevocable or irrevocable. Irrevocable or irrevocable. And finally I said, I don't care how you say it. Can you define it for me? And he goes, yeah, it means take something back. And I'm like, great. That's what we were here for. In other words, God's gifts and God's calling are things that He does not take back. He knows why He calls people, even if we don't understand why He does it. He never calls anyone by mistake. Once these gifts are given, they're given for good. They're not going to be re-gifted. God knows what He's doing, even if we don't. And when I say that, I mean God knows what He's doing with you, even if you don't fully understand that. And the same would go for me. Now, if you think about that, on one hand, when your flesh gets in the way, you say, that is terrifying. That is terrifying. But if you beat the flesh back a bit, and you hear it, in the Spirit, you say, that is such a comforting thought. That is such a comforting thought to know that God knows what He's doing, why He's doing it, even if I don't. There's a story in the Old Testament 
that I think would help us understand what's going on here. A story in the Old Testament where Elisha, uh, Elijah the prophet goes to call Elisha the prophet. He seeks and he finds him. And when he gets there, Elisha the prophet, the younger man is not a prophet yet, Elisha is working in a field and he has 12 yoke of oxen. He's with one of them. There are others out there working. Elijah the prophet comes and throws his mantle over him, takes a part of his cloak and throws it over him, which is the sign that he's just adopted him into gospel ministry. Elisha begins to follow and says, wait a minute, let me go back and kiss my mother and father. And the prophet gives him permission. And when he goes back, he doesn't just kiss his mother and father. He takes the yoke of oxen and he sacrifices them. And not just the pair that he worked with, but the others as well. And he gives the meat to all the community and he feeds everyone. Why has he slaughtered the oxen? Why has he laid down his yoke and plow? It's because he does not intend to go back ever again. I want to suggest to you that what Peter needs to do at this point of the story is he needs to slaughter his oxen and burn his plow. He needs to cut up his nets and sink his boat. And some of us need to do the same thing in our life. Jesus calls us to Himself, and yet He calls us to make personal sacrifices and leave things behind. And notice, even leave good and decent things behind in order to follow Him. Because those good and decent things we leave behind sometimes become things that call to us and reach out for us and want to grab us and say, I wasn't so bad, was I? Why'd you leave? Come back over here. And we find ourselves slipping into trouble. Martin Luther said in, this, in his hymn that he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. We must let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Now this is true for people who are called to ministry and I know many of you would be happy to apply that, apply this principle to your pastors. But I want you to know that your pastors are helping you apply it to yourselves as well. So think about it. What are those things in your life? What are even those good and decent things in your life that call you back away from Jesus? That attempt to comfort you apart from Jesus? that cradle and coddle you even against Jesus. Whatever that thing is in your life, whoever those people are, whatever that project is, whatever that dream or pursuit might be, you must leave it behind. You must forsake that thing and follow Jesus or else forsake Jesus and follow that thing. Jesus brings all of us to the crossroads, and that's where Peter is at this moment. He's at a crossroads. It's a crisis moment in his life. He needs to decide who to follow, what to do. The night has come and gone. There's no fish in the nets except Jesus is on the shore. He says, cast your nets on the right side. It doesn't mean the correct side of the boat. It just means you're fishing on the left side. You need to fish on the right side now. And he demonstrates in this that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of land and sea. 
And John is very quick to pick up on this. And so as soon as they begin to haul in this net of fish, and they realize they can't because there are so many, he puts it all together and says to Simon Peter, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. None of them understood. None of them recognized it was Jesus. He was a little too far away. Perhaps the sun was in their eyes, but John pieces it together. It's the Lord. And notice what Peter does. He's been fishing naked, or at least scantily clad. He puts his clothes on and then jumps into the waters. All of this seems so backwards, but so much of what Peter does seems backwards, doesn't it? Why would a grown man jump into a sea and swim a hundred yards? Why not just ride in the boat with everyone else? Any of you who have ever gotten busted doing the wrong thing know exactly why he did this. Or you've gotten busted doing something that might be the wrong thing, but you're not quite sure, and so what do you do? You've got to create a diversion. You've got to get busy. You've got to do something, right? To create a different impression here. Maybe there was something in him that knew, oh, I shouldn't be out here fishing, and now Jesus busted me, and, and, and he, he pulls a Dale Gribble, and it's like I dive in. I was never here, you know. But all kidding aside, I think there's more to it than that. He dives into the water. He wants to get to Jesus before the other guys do. I'm convinced of that. As I said earlier, he hasn't had a moment yet to reconcile with Jesus. He hasn't had a moment yet to confess or explain himself or to say, I'm sorry. He's just, he's not, he wants a moment alone with Jesus. And he figures that he can outrun that boat because it's hauling so many fish. So he swims a hundred yards. He wants to apologize and patch things up. He wants to make things right. Maybe he's lacking confidence or assurance in his friend. Maybe he's not sure if they're, if they're good yet. You know, he just wants to know, man, are we good? Are we good? But there wasn't enough time for it. He ran out of steam. He didn't get there in time. The other guys get there around the same time and they all show up and he doesn't have a moment to talk to Jesus. You know what that's like, right? Can you imagine how frustrating and heartbreaking all of that would be and, and how it's like the elephant in the room or in this case the elephant on the beach. You just want to clear the air and you can't do it and there you are. You've looked like a fool once again. You're soaking wet. You're dripping around the fire. And speaking of fire, the last time we saw a fire in the Gospel of John, guess who was standing next to it? Peter, in the dark and in the cold, warming himself at the devil's fire the night that he betrayed Jesus. And here he is once again. There's a fire. Do you think this is on accident? Do you think this is all happenstance? No, Jesus has built this fire. And Peter comes near, and now he's no longer at the devil's fire, is he? He's at the fire of Christ. You don't have to be cold and alone anymore. You don't have to hide in the shadows anymore. Come over here. And what does he see on the fire? Fish and bread. 
When those guys come up and they see fish and they see it's Jesus and they see fish and bread on the fire, you know they all must have stopped in their tracks and had a flashback to that time in John 6 when he said, I am the bread of life. And he took a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish and he fed thousands. And here they are once again being brought back into that story. He is treating them as that multitude of people who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. He has provided for them a fire to warm them in the morning after a long night of fishing. He has provided for them breakfast. They've already had the last supper together and now they're having first breakfast together. And once again, he is playing not only cook, but host. He is there to serve them. And I love when he says to them, bring some of the fish that you caught. Some of the fish that you caught. To which they should have been thinking, yeah, some of the fish that you put in our net so we could try to drag it in. But he's not a glory hog. They really did catch those fish. They caught those fish because they did what he told them to do. Peter rushes, jumps into action, and drags this net of fish in. It's a fisherman's harvest, only it's not their harvest, it's his. John says that there were 153 fish. These are large fish. Uh, the kind that uh, Biggin and Larry catch, right? Large fish. Why 153? Maybe a detail like that is important so that if everyone asked, is asked what happened, they can all say there were 153. We counted them. That's one way to look at it. But there are some biblical scholars who know a lot more about these things than I do, and they make a very compelling argument that what is happening here is when you count 153 in the minds of those people at that time, in those days, they would have seen the number 153, and they would have thought, the nations. The nations. These fish represent God's elect from every tribe and nation and language and people. And this is Jesus' very humorous, God has a sense of humor, very funny way of reminding them that He has called them on mission to the world. You guys ought not to be fishing. You guys ought to be out preaching the gospel to the nations. You guys ought to be out harvesting the world and bringing to me, bringing in to me all the people for whom I died. The world. And so in this story, you could break it all down and say, as you heard in the Scripture reading, there are fishermen standing beside the sea and the water has gone out, the Spirit has gone out through the earth and a great number of fish have been caught. And what we see in this story is the realization of something the prophets had told us would happen. The net is the kingdom that goes out and gathers in the harvest of fish. And Jesus is reminding these guys once again that He is the Lord of heaven and earth. That He is the one who sends them on mission. 
The living spirit, the living water is the spirit. The net is the kingdom of God. Jesus and the disciples are the fishermen who stand on the shore beside the sea. And the many fish are the elect of all the nations of the world. Jesus reminding them of their mission to the world. And reminding them that he breathed on them the spirit of life. And authorize them to take the gospel to the nations, not to go back to their former careers and hobbies and way of life. Guys, stop fishing in this sea of Galilee and go do what I've given you the spirit of grace to do. By the way, you fishermen will appreciate this. The word for full in Greek that appears here, the nets are full of fish, is the word meston. And it sounds like our word for mess and our word for ton put together. They caught a mess of large fish. They caught a ton of fish. That's quite a fishtail, isn't it? What the story tells us is that when ministers of the word, when messengers of the gospel go out into the nations and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to gather in the nets. They're going to gather into the church, gather into the presence of Christ a great number of people. And John will tell us later in the book of Revelation a number so great that no one can count them because they're coming from all the tribes and languages and nations and people of the world. It's interesting also as you look at this story and when Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast, I mentioned that he is both the cook and the host. But I don't want you to miss the symbolism built into the story here. What does he serve them? The story says he served them bread and fish, clear enough. But we know that when John says something, he says that and there's something more, isn't there? So what is he actually serving them? Jesus is serving them himself. He is the bread of life. He is the ichthus, the fish. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is feeding himself to these people. He is revealing himself once again around a meal, at a table, at a fire. He's revealing himself to his disciples once again so that they can see who he really and truly is. And so we see that his manifestation comes after his resurrection. Or to put it in a fancier way, his epiphany comes after his Anastasia. But the point of all of this is that Jesus reveals himself again and again to his disciples after the resurrection. What does he want them to see? What does he want them to know? He wants them to see and know that he is the Word made flesh for the life of the world. That he is God-man who has come to make known to us the grace and truth of God the Father, to reveal to us the glory of God. And in the midst of all of our brokenness, in the midst of all of our confusion, in the chaos of life, He makes Himself known to us. And you see once again how gracious and merciful He is. He 
He's not holding a grudge against Peter. He's not giving him the cold shoulder. He's not treating him differently than he treats the other guys. He treats them all with the same grace and love and mercy with which he has always loved them. He doesn't get onto them. He doesn't get into their face. He doesn't point out all of their flaws and weaknesses. There's no guilt trip here. He's not fear-mongering. It appears that they're not doing what he asked them to do, what he sent them to do, and yet when they finally meet on the beach and they have this encounter, his words are, come. Come on, guys. Let's eat together. Let's work this out. Come on, guys. I don't know about you. I don't know where you've been or what you've done. I don't know if you relate to Simon Peter and you're thinking of going back to something that Jesus told you to leave behind. I don't know if you're like Thomas, the cynic, who never could quite bring himself to believe Jesus until Jesus just got up in his face and said, touch me here, touch me there, look at me. I don't know if you're like Nathaniel the skeptic who sat under a tree and just couldn't believe that anything good could come from a little podunk town like Nazareth. I don't even know if you're like the disciple whom Jesus loved, who always had a way of seeing things in the way other disciples didn't. It doesn't matter. If you could relate to any one of these guys, or even to all of them in some measure, Jesus' words to you are still the same. You need to come and eat. You need to come and eat. Whatever guilt you're carrying, whatever fears haunt you, whatever brokenness is in your life, whatever mess you've made of things, you need to come. You need to eat. And Jesus has prepared a table for you in which He will feed you His flesh and His blood. He will give you His body, His life in exchange for yours. He's that gracious. He's that merciful. And I know people well enough, and I know some of you well enough to know this, that deep down inside you think, well, I don't really deserve this yet. I'm not worthy of these things. When I get things figured out, then I'm going to feel better, and then I will come. But if you wait until you get it sorted, if you wait until you get it figured out, until you have it all together, you're going to be waiting forever, apart from Christ. Because this table is not for people who have it together. It's not for people who have figured it all out. This, this table is for the messy and the broken. It is for deniers and traitors. It is for skeptics and cynics. It is for seekers and finders. It is for all kinds of people who have one thing in common. And what they have in common is their need of Jesus Christ. He has given His life for the life of the world. And He invites you to come and to eat and drink of His life. It's not breakfast. It's too late in the day for that. But the nice thing about this meal is it can be served morning, noon, and night. And it's always the same grace, always the same mercy, always the same nourishment for your soul. Let us pray together.
Oh God, grant us the grace to turn away from our old way of life and not turn back. To put our hand to the plow without regret. To leave the world behind and not look back. To forget what lies behind and press on toward what lies ahead. To exchange our boats and nets for the way of the cross. To come when you call us. To go where you lead us. To follow where you send us. All of these things we ask and pray for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.